Welcome to the Social Flight Live podcast, an audio version of our live show, hosted every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern at socialflightlive.com. Social Flight is brought to you by Aspen Avionics, Avidyne, Bose Aviation, Continental Aerospace Technologies, Lightspeed Aviation, Massimo Mighty Sat, Tempest Aero Group, and Whip Air. And now, here's your host, Jeff Simon. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Social Flight Live. I'm Jeff Simon. We have a spectacular show for you tonight. Legendary pilot and world record holder Dick Rutan is here with us, and I cannot wait to get started with him. Uh, it's, it's truly going to be an epic show. Before we get started, a few things. First of all, we are moving along towards the end of our next prize period in Social Flight's Fly to Win Challenge. We are giving away a Lightspeed Zulu 3 headset. We already gave away an Aspen E5 electronic flight instrument, and now October 1st, all you need to do is get the Social Flight mobile app for Apple or Android devices. Get out there and play Fly to Win just by going to any airport, checking in, and uh, even if you only do it once, even if it's only at your home airport, you're entered in to win the Zulu 3 headset. And if you check in at multiple airports, fly around, compete for points, you can get extra entries in the drawing and uh, it'll only increase your chances. It's a lot of fun. You can be on our leaderboard. And so be sure to check that out at Social Flight. Tonight's broadcast is brought to us by Tempest Arrow, a great supporter of Social Flight, absolutely love them. Uh, their spark plugs, air, oil filters, so much more from Tempest. And also Tempest Aero as a, as a whole, they, they, are, uh, they own Consolidated Fuel Systems, Precision Air Motive, Marvel Shelburne Carburetors, Alcor Probes, and Stratus Oil Filter Adapters. So, so many things that keep all of us flying. And I, I must say that uh, my experience as an AMP and IA has been that during the pandemic, during all the supply chain challenges, Tempest was there. They kept everything going when so many other things were stopped and so hard to get. And so uh, a big shout out to them and thanks for supporting General Aviation. Now to tonight's broadcast and tonight's guest. I've often thought of this show as a tribute to the living legends of aviation. And tonight's guest truly fits that description. As an F-100 Super Sabre pilot in Vietnam, Dick Rutan pioneered the use of tactical jets for what became known as Fast Forward Air Control, or FastVac. He flew 325 combat missions and survived an ejection when his aircraft was hit by enemy fire. Following the war, he became a test pilot and ejected a second time when his aircraft suffered an engine failure. Tonight, we are going to focus on what has become Dick Rutan's most legendary achievement. In aviation history, there are a handful of truly epic firsts. The first powered flight by Orville and Wilbur Wright, the first crossing of the Atlantic by Charles Lindbergh, uh, and the first supersonic flight by Chuck Yeager. In 1986, Dick Rutan achieved what many consider to be the last great terrestrial achievement in aviation, piloting the Voyager aircraft on the first nonstop, non-refueled flight around the world. And so I am thrilled to have him with us tonight to share some of those stories. I'm going to bring him on the line now. Please welcome to Social Flight Live, Dick Rutan. 
Let's uh, get Dick on the line here. We'll try that. There we go. How are you doing, Dick? Can you hear me? I hear you fine, and uh, welcome to all those out in Cyberland. Glad you're here. <laughs> Thank you so, so much for joining us tonight. I am uh, truly, truly in awe of your achievements, and, and I am grateful for you to, to be joining us here on Social Flight Live. Well, this is great. Uh, I was wondering if you could take us... Nature is essence of life. <laughs> That and is very, that is very true. Old and still alive, so I, I, I got to be happy about that also. Absolutely. So take us back to the genesis of the idea at conquering this last first in aviation. Well, it was back to a little... Uh, a little restaurant, a little Chinese restaurant called the Overpass Cafe uh, in 1980 uh, in Mojave, California, a little tiny hole in the wall. But anyway, it had a big, it had a big, huge runway, uh, an airport. And so if you're in aviation, you could do neat things. Anyway, I got out of the Air Force and I met my girlfriend at that time, uh, Gina, and we were looking for another challenge. Anyway, I was going to meet my brother at this little restaurant, and uh, I was trying to talk him into designing an aerobatic airplane, and we were kind of into that at that time. And uh, I could right away I could hear that he was not at all interested in hearing anything about an, uh, an aerobatic airplane. <laughs> and he happened to mention, he says, you know, I've been thinking about it with the advent and availability of a new material called carbon fiber that it was now probably possible for the very first time to build an airplane that could carry enough fuel that it could fly nonstop, non-refueled around the world. So this was his idea. And, and, and by the time he got that out of his mouth, uh, the whole concept just, it, it permeated my psyche. And I thought, wow, that's gonna be a milestone. Uh, we'd, we've set some aviation records and they're in the record books. But this is a milestone, a nonstop, non-refuel flight around the world. And then I got to thinking about the significance of that and what that would mean uh, to aviation and particularly to us. And uh, then I was totally taken up by the whole thing. And the whole thing was, I said, hell, Bert, if you, you, if you think you can design it, well, Gene and I will build it and we'll fly it around the world. Little did I know what was going to happen in the next five and a half years, which is a, a very interesting honesty that was uh, a little bit challenging. Did you have any idea at that point that you were looking at a five and a half year journey to, to, to even starting, to, to starting the flight? No, not at all. And I thought, this is going to be a world flight. And all the advertisers that uh, here's an opportunity for them to have world wide exposure uh, for their product, whatever it was. And for the first, I think it was almost two and a half years that Gene and I, we went around to try to find that. And uh, we talked to a lot of people, even Ross Perot and uh, Baron Hilton, and of course all the big advertisers like American Express and uh, 
couple other ones that I can't come to mind. And we got to meet with him and talk to him about that. And, uh, and uh, a lot of them seemed to be very intrigued, basically. And uh, then there was this guy that would come up. Uh, he's kind of short, kind of a small person and bald head and had this partic particular look. And he would come up and whisper something into the CEO's ear. And then the CEO would say, well, why don't you uh, give us, yeah, give us a call when you get back. <laughs> and I says, well, who in the heck is this guy that walks up and changes the CEO's mind? And he says, well, there, he's the corporate lawyer. And he reminds his boss that try to imagine our logo at the end of a runway in a fireball. And so then they didn't have the courage that was needed to be part of our program. And the only ones that had, the only people that actually had the courage, I guess, was the tobacco industry. And they offered us more money than I could ever dream about. And uh, I told them they didn't have enough money because I was an avid anti-smoker for a long, all my life. And I told them that you guys don't have enough money for us to put a cigarette on that airplane. Gene hmm. and I turned around and walked away from that encounter. And we th we're living in an incredible little shack there in Mojave. I didn't have enough money to replace some worn out tennis shoes. Uh, mother would come up and buy some tacos and something for us. Uh, but that's the level of uh, poverty that we that we found ourselves. We spent most of our savings trying to get the big sponsor. Yeah. Until one day. Uh, we were given a little talk at the El Monte Airport Association. Uh, just a handful of people that, that gather, you know, at, at different airports and, and they build airplanes and fly their airplanes and little association. It couldn't have been 20 or 30 people there. And uh, I looked around and I thought, and they offered to, for, for a donation. You know, we were looking at a couple of million dollar donation and here we're looking at maybe five and ten dollar donation. And then it finally dawned on Gene and I says, you know something? These are the people that will ultimately fund this project mm. and provide the volunteers that's going to make it possible. So at that point, we just wrote off uh, Ross Perot and Baron Hilton and says, we're not going to hire a bunch of people to build this airplane. We're going to have to we're going to have to build the damn thing. And that's how it turned out. Uh, that there were actually three of us, and over almost two years, ground stop, uh, bagging and borrowing materials, clever innovation of tooling and and uh, prepreg carbon fiber, and a totally new way to, to to build an airplane under Bert's tutelage. It was his idea, and he designed it. And uh, I never even asked him to pr to prove it. I says, if you can design it and you think we can do it, well, let's go ahead and do it. And so we were off and running. Wow, that's amazing. Now, the, the program itself of, of development was, you had a lot of challenges during that. And there, there, tell me a little bit about the, 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 the advances, but also the setbacks that you had along the way before you ever even got to attempt the, the, the flight. Well, that's true because yeah, you can you can well appreciate even though we had carbon fiber, that was a big major part of it. However, uh, 
Bert would point out that every ounce of of something on the airplane, whether it's structure or um, flight controls or comfort or noise suppression, that was not just that much more fuel. And in fact, we got so uh, conscious of uh, Bert beating us up on weight all the time uh, that we would uh, actually, we painted the airplane and then sanded it to try to take, not to make it look better, but to get the weight off <laughs> of what was sanded. And uh, I tell the story that just for the flight, Gina uh, sat down and cut her nice long hair off. And I took it over and weighed it. And uh, it weighed about, a, I don't know, quarter of an ounce or an ounce or something like that, the weight of her hair. And we figured out that the weight of her hair would take the Voyager an additional quarter of a mile. And somebody came up to me and says, I says, boy, you're really cruel. I says, look at that. You cut her hair off for a quarter of a mile. And I remember looking at him and thinking how difficult and remind him how difficult it would be to swim a quarter of a mile in a shark infested ocean. So we had and we brought it back into perspective. But there was a, uh, besides Bert doing the design, there was one other key person that walked through the door at the very beginning. And his name was uh, Bruce Evans. And if he had not walked through the door, uh, there was no way that this would ever be possible. Bruce became your crew chief, right? Bruce was a crew chief, and he was an extremely talented uh, craftsman, very conscientious. And uh, he would bring us back to reality a long times. And sometimes I would want to take a, a shortcut here and there, and he would keep us grounded. But his talent and his work ethics were something that the Voyager project really needed. And another mm. thing too is that uh, between the two brothers, uh, we had different concepts about how the airplane was going to be deployed and so forth. And uh, whether I needed radar or not, or some other little bit of uh, avionics. And, and uh, there would be close to, um, well, let's call it a physical altercation. <laughs> which Bruce would step in the way and uh, try to mitigate this whole thing. So, well, I mean, radar is one that is, is kind of fascinating to me because you think about how many aircraft, of course, fly without it, but, but you were flying in such a kind of fragile aircraft that it became really important. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, you're right. And, and if you're gonna have an airplane that, that goes that far, you're going to have to break a lot of rules. Mm. And there are some accepted practices in aviation as far as uh, handling qualities and uh, lat long stability and, uh, and also structural integrity. Uh, most, a lot of airplanes will go to four times G's, four or five times the G loads and without failure. And that's kind of a, a requirement especially since someday down the road that uh, somebody's going to lumber into a thunderstorm and they need to be able to survive that. But to put it in perspective, instead of four or five uh, load limits, the Voyager had a uh, 0.4 of a G. Well, you know, well, obviously it could fly with one G, the, just the load of flying straight and level. But if you increase that maybe a quarter of a G, then the airplane would self-destruct. Oh my goodness. When it got heavier, uh, there was some other, uh, it had a real unique design. It had tons of fuel in those boom tanks laterally. 
and a canard arrangement and uh, how it, would, it was extremely flexible. They would, uh, the wings would flap up and down and, and it would, uh, all of a sudden it would lose its static margin and it would just start porpoising. And uh, until we burned off roughly half of our fuel load, if, uh, if I just let go of the stick, the airplane would self-destruct within about 15 seconds. And I remember the very first time I tried to bank it, uh, with a big long air, long wing airplane, those of you that fly uh, gliders know about uh, adverse yaw. A little aileron could couple into adverse yaw, which couples into some other things that are not very pleasant. Uh, so I banked it to 20, I think I banked it to 20 degrees right bank, which is really steep in that airplane. And then I'm making a 20 degree bank turn and that was cool. Then I was gonna try to roll out. So the first thing you do, you're a coordinated pilot and you give it rudder and you give it aileron in that direction to add, you know, the coordinated. Well, it started, it started to roll out, but then it hesitated and it started to roll in the opposite direction. So at that point, you would give full rudder and full aileron and that just made it worse to roll over on its back the other direction. And uh, I don't know why I had presence enough of mind to think, well, this is not working. So why don't we start all over again? So I neutralize everything. And for some reason, and I don't know where this came, but it's a good thing that you can eliminate adverse yaw by going to zero G with no load on the airplane, there's no adverse yaw. So then I dumped the nose almost to zero G with full aileron and, and our full rudder and a little bit of aileron. So you give it just enough aileron for it to roll out, but if you give it too much, then it would hesitate and roll back the other way. And so with four, <laughs> near zero G, so basically uh, the airplane, yeah, it wasn't the, the best thing as far as uh, being agile. It's certainly not a fiber. It was interesting too, when we tried to fly formation, you know, if you have a new airplane, you find a camera plane and you join up and take pictures. <laughs> well, there was no way that I had enough control of the airplane to stay anywhere near camera range without hitting the target airplane. So it was really a handful to fly. Very wow. unnerving to see the wings flail around like that. It, uh, uh, and and uh, I do have, here's a picture that was taken. Tell, tell me how how this was done. Well, the the... the the thing is that uh, the boom tanks were to distribute the load uh, along the lifting surface. Uh, so if you have big long wings and you put all the weight in the middle, you can look at all the root bending moments, uh, requirements of spars in the center. But if you can distribute the load along the lifting surface, if that's where it's lifting in, we'll put the load out there. And that's what the boom tanks were all about. And before we, and until we burned the fuel out of the boom tanks, the airplane acted like three different airplanes. So as the wings would come up, it would rotate around the boom tanks, then it would push the back of the fuselage down. So that made it to be a, uh, a divergent situation. And that phenomenon became worse and worse as the airplane became heavier and heavier. And in fact, uh, that morning when we took off, we had more fuel on board the airplane than had ever been put in the tanks before, much left flowing it. So my biggest concern was that I could even fly it. In fact, when we lifted off out there that morning, uh, we started to climb and I was amazing. And I was saying to Gina, I said, Gina, Gina, look, I can fly it, I can fly it. <laughs> and she looked at me with 
knowing eyes like that, she knew it. Well, she could have told me, but I was really amazed that I could actually fly the airplane because I thought with that extra fuel and that decaying of uh, pitch stability, that maybe even the world's greatest velvet arm pilot would not be able to fly the airplane. That think, even thinking of that, the idea that you were surprised at the beginning of this flight that it was actually working is mind blowing how, what a razor's edge you guys were on with this flight. Well, an another thing too is that the, uh, the engines, uh, it, actually it was a single engine airplane by all aspects. And we put another engine on the front for uh, takeoff, climb, and initial cruise. And we would burn, we would, uh, halfway around the world, we would consume three-fourths of the fuel on board. Uh, let's see, I forget that. But anyway, uh, before we got to Guam, we were over half, the half the fuel was gone by design. Then we could finally shut down the front engine and feather it and get back on that liquid-cooled engine which had incredible fuel specific. Uh, uh, something that fuel specific or its efficiency that was uh, unknown to, to general aviation at that time. And wow. I've been an advocate of uh, liquid cooling for a lot of reasons. Wow. Now, when you, speaking of fuel, when you, when you took off, the, I think a lot of the, the uh, concerns that people had is that those wingtips hit the ground. The airplane was actually damaged, wasn't it, during that takeoff? Well, that's true. And everybody says, well, uh, why didn't you put a skateboard out there or something? Well, we never intended it for it to drag. And I remember uh, I had flown there. We had uh, only about two-thirds, I don't know, three-quarters of the fuel on board that we even ever had in the tanks, much less trying to flight test it. And that was the heaviest that we ever flew the airplane. And then that morning, we were going to fill the airplane a lot more than they even had fuel in the tanks. And so the fueling process uh, had to be weighed almost every ounce, because if you put fuel in the outboard wings, they would fall right on the ground. So then you'd have to put fuel in the center of the fuselage, and, and the fuselage would push it down and put the, pull the wingtips back up. And then fore and aft, the boom tanks, if you put too much in a forward boom tank, that it would bend down and actually break it off. So we had to be very careful about how the airplane was even loaded. And see, that process was going to take maybe six hours there in the, that cold morning at Edwards Air Force Base there in December of 86. Uh, and here again, the crew chief, Bruce Evans, it was his responsibility. And if he made a mistake at all, it would have been at the end of the project. And so, you can imagine the trust that I have in an individual. Hang on uh, just a second. Let me turn the volume up. For what yeah. he did, I could I owe him anything he'd ever want. I was really admitted to him. That's a that's absolutely amazing. Okay, but uh, along the same line, we found we we just realized uh, everybody is saying, "Oh, gee, the wingtips all ground off on the runway." But then Bert and I, it was a couple of years later we realized something that, I says, Bert, do you realize that if those wingtips had not drug on the ground, we would not have made it? Really? The reason we wouldn't have made it is that uh, 
Remember the boom tanks out there and those long wings that were full of fuel. Uh, they have to lift. And, and the thing was that I was going to fly those wings up down the runway. But if you try to fly them up, then you have to do that with, with lift. And as you create lift, you create uh, adverse yaw. Now, if here we are, we took about 95% of the world's longest runway. And if we'd have tried to fly the wings and endure the, uh, well, the adverse, not the adverse yaw, but the, uh, uh, the lift, uh, uh, to try to, because it was going to take drag to lift those wings, and we would have run right off the runway had we not done that. So that was actually fortuitous, one of those things like uh, that happened in the flight, like comes to mind with uh, Lieutenant White, and there was so many other things in a similar vein as that. Tell me that story about Lieutenant White, because that goes right along with the radar idea. Right. Now, we went down... Put it in perspective, we finally gave up on finding a big sponsor. And so we settled down, and, and the three of us, it says, we're going to build this airplane ourselves, whatever it's going to take. And then we had to find somebody to uh, Hercules Fiber up in Salt Lake City uh, to donate the prepreg carbon fiber at just the right uh, ratio. And I had to build an oven and some... Autoclaves. We went up there, and in the big autoclave, we built the spars, uh, and 300 psi and uh, nitrogen autoclave for the spars. But all the rest of it was all pre pre preg and tooling and vacuum bags and stuff. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that was that was that was that was a big challenge. And yeah. here again, the, uh, the airplane was built around a quarter of an inch thick of, of uh, uh, paper honeycomb core from Hexel. Mm -hmm. A quarter of an inch thick honeycomb. Wow. And on the top and the bottom of that, we would bond uh, the carbon fiber facing to make a sandwich. Mm -hmm. And the thickness of those facings were probably the same as your, uh, the newspaper that you have, the thickness of it. So it was so fragile that if you just put your elbow on a wing, you could crush and damage and damage the uh, the honeycomb underneath. And a lot of times you could damage it and it would pop back up and you wouldn't know it was damaged. So I had to be very, very careful. Wow. And so that was a big concern that we didn't damage the airplane uh, like that. Yeah. So you managed to convince Bert to do radar. Tell me a little bit, of course, because of the limits uh, that the aircraft uh, and and how important it was to be able to spot weather. Well, Tell when I when I come up and I found and I realized that I told him I was going to have to have radar. Well, he was apoplectic. He just didn't understand it at all. But the fact is that as a nav, I flew for while I was waiting to go to pilot training. I flew as a navigator in a C-124 on a Travis Air Force Base back and forth to Southeast Asia right in the same altitude in the same area. So I had almost two years of experience out there. And I knew that if I did not have radar, I was in a world of hurt. <laughs> and as it turned out, uh, we did use radar and we also use it for navigation. You know, this is before GPS. If you can imagine right. time before, the, the, before we had GPS. <laughs> so. It's 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 amazing, and then so so you've got this. I, I love the story about Lieutenant White. So you're 
you're you're out at Edwards and and planning on relying on radar. Tell me about Lieutenant White. Well, let's see. I I did. I was able to. Uh, I was able to uh, win the argument with Bert over uh, some effort about radar, and he was really upset about the fact that I needed something that he didn't think we needed. Uh, and uh, I was trying to convince him, and that uh, he had it in his mind. But but whatever, I did win that, and we did have radar on on board the airplane. Thank goodness. And um, the story about uh, the avionics package. I was sitting at my desk one day and we were trying to find the avionics package. And when we first flew the airplane, we had some borrowed avionics and a handheld battery powered radio. And that's what we used to fly to Oshkosh in fact, <laughs> uh, prematurely. So we needed some sophisticated avionics, uh, sophisticated autopilot and uh, uh, navigation system. Like I said, it was before, uh, before GPS. So we had to use uh, VLF and Omega, which is kind of a poor man's inertial nav system. Uh, so that's the best of what we had, because most of this thing by design was going to be out over the ocean, whether it's a long ways from a VOR or a TACAN, whatever. So uh, I did win the thing on radar. And we're getting towards the, kind of the end of the project. and. Uh, Within you know, months of being ready to go, and uh, the weatherman came up with a certain weather window that we had to fly, and he's looking at world world uh, world weather about where we can go and and so forth. And uh, we kept getting being delayed. And I thought we were doing pretty good until one day we were on a test program, uh, one of the heavyweight test programs, and it happened to be just west of of Edwards Air Force Base. In fact, I could. Uh, outside of the restricted area, I could look down the, this world's longest runway. And then, uh, in the interest of trying to save weight, we went and got a propeller system that was nowhere near up to the task. And one of the blades came off. And uh, if a blade comes off an airplane that you're flying, it is a memorable experience. Uh, the vibration is such that you can't see anything. It's all you can do is hear this horrible thing. And now in a push-pull airplane, you have no idea what engine it was. And fortunately, Bruce was on my wing, <clears throat> and in fact, he was filming it. And, um, and of course, he saw the propeller blade come off and go careening over the top of the airplane. And uh, the noise was such that the only thing that I wanted to know was which engine it was, because there was no way to differentiate between what engine had gone bad. Uh, and so I asked him and he told me and I, and it was garbled. And, and of course, here I am, there's parts of the instrument panel falling in my lap, uh, all kinds of stuff coming apart in the airplane, in the cockpit. And I had to have that little bit of information. So if you listen to it, uh, the anxiety on Dick's voice was something that was uh, something other than cool Chuck Yeager. <laughs> about what it, what engine is it? And finally Bruce realized that and he kept, and he told me over and over again, it was the front engine that shut it down. Now, one thing about uh, losing propellers blades or having a vibration like that, especially the guys fly Formula One with those propellers that come off. And when they, when one blade comes off, tears the engine off. 
And those Formula One racers, they have a big cable around the engine. <laughs> and sometimes the propellers let go and it tears the engine off the mounts and the engine will be hanging between their legs uh, as the airplane is dead stick. But anyway, uh, I knew that the vibration had its natural frequency. And when it slowed down to that natural frequency, it would in fact rip the engine right off its mounts. And so, uh, <laughs> That being the case, we had no choice. I reached up and shut down the front engine and saw its RPM slow down to reach a natural frequency. And when it did, wham, it ripped the front engine right off. Now, when we built the airplane, this carbon fiber structure to hold the front engine on there, on the, the firewall and the forward fuselage, I didn't think it was even strong enough to hold the weight of the airplane, much less being ripped the steel engine mounts apart. But that's what happened. Uh, the engine ended up laying on the, on the cowling, basically on the cowling uh, on the bottom of the airplane. But then I thought there couldn't possibly be anything connected, like rudder, pitch, aileron. I could have fuel smells. I had uh, the radar fell out in my lap. Another instrument fell out of my lap, and I'm trying to push them back in. And so the cockpit was an absolute jumble of, uh, of a mess. And then when I realized that all three controls were still hooked up, I thought, wow, maybe I can live. And so then we made the classic call again to Edwards Air Force Base. Edwards Tower, this is Voyager 1, I'm four miles east, four miles west. Uh, mayday, mayday, mayday. <laughs> Those are the magic words, and you can get into any restricted area and land on any runway. Uh, you can. So we just made a, a virtually dead stick. Now, we're really big, heavy. Now, going into this runway, I knew it was long and I could make that just fine. But however, we knew the airplane was heavily damaged and it was going to be a lot easier to fix it at home. And I could have made a 90 degree left turn and it would have been about five miles to our to our home base. That uh, I didn't I didn't know that we did not have single engine capability. And if I screwed up the approach, there was no going around or if I ended up a little short, there was no, you know, I couldn't make it to the runway. And I thought, well, I'm a pretty good pilot, and that's really important that we can work at our home. And then Bruce said something about, well, all that stuff came off the front engine, and we did not know how much the back engine was damaged. So <laughs> all of a sudden, that made the that made the decision good. So we went and landed at Edwards. Wow. And, you know, after. After that, I was really, I'm getting more emotionally tired and really spent. And we pulled off on the taxiway and shut it down. And I laid down on the ground and put my head up against the tire. And I thought, well, uh, there's no way we can fix this thing. So it's going to be a year before we get to regenerate this whole thing. However, the most of the volunteers and stuff, they weren't going to handle that. And so they went ahead and, and regenerated it. And we taped up the cowling with duct tape and uh, flew the airplane back to Mojave. We defueled it and flew it back to Mojave. And then we had a whole bunch of work, all the avionics, the radars, everything had to be sent back to the manufacturer. Both engines had to go back to the manufacturer and be torn down and inspected. So it was a huge job. But the long and the short of that was that we were gonna be outside the weather window. Uh, and the weather guy, uh, Lynn Snellman, he came up to me and he says, well, Dick, he says, we missed the weather window. So it looks like it's going to be another year. <laughs> now, I was really beat. I said, Lynn, I says, I'll tell you what, 
right now the airplane's not ready. And we're going to work like mad and get it ready again and fix this stuff. And when it's fixed, I'm going to fly around the world. Now, you go back into your weather department and you find us a way around the world because we're going to go. Uh, there was no more. I had borrowed so much stuff. Uh, a bunch of computers and stuff to weather loop. We had all five of the world's uh, geosynchronous weather satellites uh, hardwired into our mission control. And there was no way to wait. There wasn't. And so Lynn came back the next day and he says, Dick, I think I found you a way around the world. Uh, he says, except Africa. I can't get you across Africa. And I looked at the map and there's a big long map. So it's a huge thing. And Africa is only about that far on the map. <laughs> I says, heck with it. I'll just worry about Africa when we get there. <laughs> a couple of days, uh, basically, uh, there'd been a lot of people that come by. Uh, the Voyager project, and and had I stopped and talked to all of them, I would have never gotten. I'd still be talking to people. So we come up with a rule. It's called the five-minute rule. It says no matter who you are, whatever, I'll talk to you for five minutes. And after five minutes, <laughs> uh, conversation's over, and you have to leave. And so we had the five-minute rule. Anyway, this guy calls, and I think he walked in. He, he said, I'm, "I'm Lieutenant White." Nice looking guy, uh, Air Force officer, and he's from Edwards Air Force Base. And he says, I got something you've got to take. And he was really insistent. He was double, double insistent that we take this. And a lot of people would come up and say, hey, I got this gizmo. And it's really cool. And what do you think? Uh, maybe we can get it for you. <laughs> and being a gadget freak, sometimes that was uh, some of those things were hard to turn down. But this guy was the, the tenor of who he was after us on this. I uh, showed us that, and they were uh, the latest in military-style uh, night vision goggles, and you could see at night. And the first thing I says, hey, I've just got the most sophisticated radar from, from Ed King. Uh, yeah, did I tell you how we got Ed King? Uh, I knew that I needed Ed King and his radios, and they were really the best, and they were the lightest and most reliable. And there was going to be about a quarter million dollars worth of avionics with the radar and the long range communication, the HF radio net, uh, the autopilot, and uh, the very latest that he had. And I, I literally, I had the phone up in my ear and I had the Rolodex open to Ed King. And I was about ready to dial his number. And I was trying to come into my mind about what I was going to tell Ed King to convince us to donate that amount of avionics in the phone ring. It was Ed King. He said, Dick, I know what you're doing and I'd be honored if you would use my equipment. <laughs> well, I almost swallowed my teeth. Uh, that was very similar to what uh, uh, Don Bigler, who was running Teledyne Continental Motors at that time, and there was this liquid-cooled engine they had developed for a classified military program. I heard about the engine, and he called me up and offered that engine to me. And I thought, wow, you mean the IOL 200 engine? Yeah, that one. And so there was a number of things like that. Anyway, Lieutenant White called. He came in and he showed it to stuff. And I, I was kind of arguing with him and telling him to kind of go away. And uh, so I says, well, okay, I'll, I'll check them out and see if they're any good. And so it was dark 
that night, of course, dark as inside of a cow in Mojave, the desert. And I walked out and turned his night vision goggles on, and what I could see was phenomenal. I couldn't believe it. If you put the put them down, and all you saw was black. You put them up, and you could actually see things, uh, kind of greenish and kind of pixely. But man, the stuff you could see. Now I knew that Bert knew that I was going to take this after he acquiesced to having us give us radar. That <laughs> there was no way. So I, uh, I'm being a gadget freak, you know, like most of us are gadget freaks. We like gadgets. And I told Jana to go and hide them underneath the floorboard in the back of the airplane. And so Bert would, couldn't find them. <laughs> so that's how they ended up on the airplane. Little did I know that that was going to save our life uh, within about tell us 10 about hours. That. Tell, tell me why, why the, uh, the night vision goggles really saved your life. Well, uh, that morning at Edwards, uh, it, it rolled down the runway. The wings were dragging on the ground. Everybody was, Bert was chasing us, and Mike Melville was chasing us in, the, in an airplane and screaming, Dick, Dick, pull back on the stick, pull back on the stick. You got wingtips on the ground, pull back on the stick. And for some reason, I didn't, because I was worried about having to fly those wings with this divergent thing with it uh, on the landing gear, because the dynamics of those oscillations on the landing gear would be different than they were in flight. And so I did not, I just left, I just ignored them. Uh, and it's a good thing I did. How did I pull back on the stick when they told us we wouldn't have made, we wouldn't have made the mission because the induced drag of lifting all that tons of fuel out there would have, uh, would increase the drag and we wouldn't have had uh, takeoff speed by the end of the world's longest runway. Wow. So they did, it, uh, for some reason, I didn't think that we were that close to the end of the runway. It was in my mind. I was only interested in the speed. And I think we needed 94 knots indicated. And I let it go to 98 knots, I think, from mom, something like that. And then, I, then the first time I reached down and grabbed the stick and I said, Dick, if you've never been smooth at any time in your life, you better be smooth right now because this is a big one. <laughs> And looking at the film, that those wings down on the ground, they slowly, slowly came up and they came up to level and then the wings just kept going up. The wingtips kept going higher and higher. And I thought, oh my God, they're gonna touch over the top of my head. And so I actually hunkered down a little bit so I couldn't see the wingtips. and just kept easing it back and it lifted off. And uh, we flew in ground effect until we got a hundred knots and there, then we had excess power to climb. We climbed to 6,500 feet that morning. I made a couple of orbits, made a couple of orbits around the, uh, around the field. Uh, and, and the neat, real quick, the neat thing about Edwards Air Force Base is this big, huge lake. Uh, uh, if you run off the end of the runway, you run off into the dry lake. And so there's not a road or a ditch or trees at the end. And it's uh, probably the seven mile overrun <laughs> that's really saved a lot of people, which is very nice. But the, the departure profile was, is that uh, the higher I got, the farther away from the center of the lake that I could become. Uh, so we kept climbing higher. As we started to climb higher, it was farther away. And the, th the theory was, 
that if I had anything wrong, the engine's overheating or some other emergency, I could just dump the nose, turn towards the center of the dry lake and make a dead stick landing uh, until we got high enough. Uh, so I did climb to about 6,500 feet. We made a couple of orbits. Uh, things looked pretty good. And uh, of course the wingtips were there and I had to shake those off. <laughs> And uh, I knew that if I got that thing airborne, there was no way I was going to quit. I was tired. I didn't care if the damn airplane was on fire. Literally, I was not going to quit. And then after a couple of orbits and we got rid of the wingtips, they shook those off. Then we turned until we had W in the compass and held it for nine days, three minutes and 44 seconds. And I looked up and there was Edwards Air Force Base again. <laughs> Long story short, right? Wow. Anyway, we climbed to 6,500 feet uh, and headed, uh, updated our VLF on Omega system and started it and right over the vast Pacific Ocean. The next stop was going to be the Philippines. Uh, it's a big ocean. And Bert flew with us for a couple hundred miles and he got nervous because he couldn't see land anymore. <laughs> and then he said goodbye and good luck. And the parting was really something because... We looked at each other and made our wave. And I'll never forget that morning that he turned and, and left us alone. Uh, it was a beautiful morning, uh, little puffy clouds out over, the, out over the Pacific Ocean. It was nice and smooth. Uh, we finally got the engines leaned out, got the, uh, got the right power set up for the gross weight, the things we had to do, uh, fine tune the autopilot a little bit, and it started to work okay. And then as the, the noon and the afternoon came up, I noticed that these little puffy clouds, uh, they, start, they start growing. They get bigger and bigger. And occasionally they were above our flight level, 6,500 feet. They'd be poking their way up. Now here this airplane was so fragile. At that point, its structure, uh, just a very little bit of any kind of light turbulence at all would have taken the wings off the airplane. Hmm. or just the flying qualities. If I had to bank it or do something, it was just, there's just no way that I could handle the airplane. So occasionally I had to start going around these towering cumulus. Now they weren't anywhere near thunderstorms or anything like that, but occasionally there were some bigger ones that they would grow maybe to 15,000 feet. And uh, towards evening, and, uh, and I was going around one and I was looking, I was looking up ahead, it was, at the, it was about 10 o'clock, at the 10 o'clock position, it was over there and I had to make a 15 degree heading change to go around this big thing. But if you were in any kind of other airplane, you wouldn't even give it a second thought. But if you were in the Voyager, uh, that was a killer, that was a killer cloud. So I'm going around that and then we were, uh, I thought, okay, nighttime's coming up. And uh, the moon wouldn't come up until three quarters of the way through the night. So as the sun went down, it got really dark and it got really dark quick. And I turned the radar on before the sun went down and it started uh, searching and we went through its uh, diagnostic check. Everything was up and I turned it to operate. Wholly expected to see that cloud up there on the radar. And it was not on the radar. There wasn't enough moisture in it to make a radar return. And it didn't take very long for me to figure out that there's something out there at night and the radar 
can't pick it up and it would kill us. Uh, this is bad news. Then my first thought is, well, there's no way we can spend 10 nights out here like that without a radar picking up the stuff that would kill us. And so I thought, shoot, uh, we're going to have to abort and go back. We have to fix this some way. And I grabbed the heading knob and we started a 180 degree turn that morning or that night. And then it dawned on me something else. And that was uh, aborting Dick is not going to save your life. It's going to take you all night to get back home. And there are those same things are going to be out there. And eventually you're going to run right into them. And then I thought about the anxiety of knowing that there's something out there. You can't see it. And it could be 10 feet away, it could be whatever. And then just the anxiety of hitting one of those invisible, I uh, just, you know, grabbed my heart out. And I thought, good gravy, of all the things that happened, you know, that we thought could happen, and that this. And, uh, and I thought, turning around isn't going to save my life. We're still in a bad position. And then I thought, Lieutenant White, holy bananas. Gina, <laughs> get that box up here quick. <laughs> and so then uh, got it out, turned them on, looked outside, and sure enough, uh, I could see the clouds that the radar could not pick up. Boy, was that thing. So now we're back on course. And, uh, and then I thought, wait a minute, this is a 10-night flight. How long are the batteries good for? <laughs> And then I thought, remember what my mom said, you got to do the best with what you got. I says, I don't know how long these batteries are good for, but what I'm going to do is ration them as much as I can. So we decided to take a take three second hit, turn them on for three seconds and memorize, shut them off and then wait for 15 minutes and then turn it back on again. Take another three, three second look until we got to moonrise. Uh, well, then <laughs> uh, I took a look and I says, well, we can we can fly for at least 15 minutes, I thought. And then I could turn. Uh, I could turn the night vision goggles off and then now I'm looking outside. It's black now. Now I can't see, but I've taken a look with the night vision goggles and I thought, my God, uh, I wonder if the depth perception is good. Um, Maybe these the wide angle. It's one of them's drifted over. Maybe one of them popped up in front of me. And I couldn't stand it more than about five minutes. I couldn't stand it. I had to take another look. <laughs> and then I took another look. And then I was uh, right the first time. And then the only way that I could go through 15 minutes running into black, not knowing, but I kept thinking about Dick, uh, a week and a half from now, you're going to need one more hit. To get to the very last dawn and the things the batteries are dead and then you'll look back a week and a half before that that you wasted one that you didn't need to and now you've lost it so with that in mind that was the motivation to sit there for 15 minutes to take another look real quick oh my goodness <laughs> then, you know the, the most anticipated thing on the whole flight and that was moonrise because when the moon would come up then we could see visually and that was a big event every night for us. Wow, that's that is truly amazing. Um, you know, an another aspect that I, I find fascinating is 
you you were able to do this because of also having autopilot but the dynamics of the aircraft required that this tuning of an autopilot that we don't think about in general aviation that gets done during the certification process when you buy an autopilot for a for a specific model aircraft it's been tuned it's been set for all that but voyager kept changing constantly tell me about making those adjustments manually well obviously unique this airplane would go into a dynamic divergent pitch oscillation and so you can imagine that the rate gain schedules for each one of those uh for each one of those parameters were different. But the bad news was that as we got lighter and lighter, those rate gains changed. And so when we first started flying the airplane to customize all those gain schedules and stuff to, to customize it and teach the autopilot how to fly this thing, uh, we put, um, oh, there's some yaw rate gyros that they use for yaw rates. They put it, they turn them 90 degrees and put them in the pitch axis. And uh, the guys at King Radio called him the Woof Man. Uh, he came out there and they programmed this thing to make it work. Uh, and then they says, yeah, I don't know what we're gonna do. We can program it for this weight, but then what are we gonna do? And I looked at this big box that I had in my lap with all kinds of knobs on it that you use to customize uh, the algorithms for this, this autopilot. And so I thought, well, why don't we just miniaturize this thing in my lap? And then every time I turn the autopilot on, we have to go through a programming for the rate gains. And if they weren't set right, the airplane would start hopping, you know, pitching up and down. And then if they were not the other way, then they would go into a long period fugoid that would diverge, not a fugoid, but a uh, Dutch roll that would diverge. So every time I turned the autopilot on, there was a bunch of that little box would come up and we'd have to um, uh, click, 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 click and, and fine tune this thing so I could finally take my hand off the autopilot and sit there and watch it. And sometimes it would work, if it go into any kind of little rough air at all, then it would go uh, crazy. So then I either had to hand fly it or readjust the boxes. And, uh, uh, sometimes we'd fly back into smooth air and then the autopilot would, when the, the stick was sensitive and the stick would be jumping all over the place. Yep, 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 yep. You have to get the box out and, and, and customize it for that gross weight and speed and so forth. Wow. But what That's, else was I going to do? I had plenty of time. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a good That's thing. Too. You, were, you were the avionics technician, the developer, the engineer, the pilot, you, you know. That's, that's yeah, amazing. The thing is that the workload, the workload was just perfect. Because if there's no workload, the fatigue of just sitting there watching it is extreme. Mm. Uh, probably the worst fatigue thing is when you're not doing anything or yeah. lack of sensory, sensory input. But the workload was just stuff that uh, I knew we had a long way to go and I needed to get every, every nautical mile out of every gram of fuel that was on board the airplane. So to set the engines up at the right RPM and the right manifold pressure and the right leaning uh, and so forth, it was a. Sometimes it would take 20 minutes to set up the engines uh, for maximum cruise. And of wow. course, as we burned off fuel, then that would change constantly. And uh, so that workload and also transferring the fuel around the airplane to keep it center of gravity. 
because there wasn't any there wasn't any fuel at the center of gravity, and so every everything we transferred or every fuel we burned would change its center of gravity back and forth. And then, of course, it's more efficient as it gets more tail heavy, which makes it more sensitive. Then I could go on and on, but it was really a handful to keep that thing going. How did you how did you manage uh, sleep to make it in ten ten days? Sleep. Was there any? <laughs> oh, uh, I guess you have to get the book to read it. But there's, a, it's a, it's a, oh, they call it a interpersonal relationships between people. Uh, Jean and I had some big arguments, and I needed to train her on how to work all this sophisticated equipment. Or even that, just to talk on the radio. And the lexicon on an HF radio is totally different than what we normally use on a, on our VHF radio for normal communication here. Totally different. And it's upper sideband and lower sidebands and, and so forth when you're talking uh, HF radio. Uh, I couldn't get her to talk on the radio, period. She would not do that. So how was I going to go to sleep? Yeah. Another thing, I wanted her to learn... Uh, uh, you know, how to set up the equipment and how to do the autopilot and even how to fly the airplane when it was heavy, when it would diverge. And yeah. so we put her in the seat to try to train her to fly the airplane. Uh, now I'm laying on my side and I, I'm reaching around behind her uh, to get a hold of the stick, which is on her right side. And, and I kicked off the autopilot, and she flew it for a little bit, and then the airplane started on its pitch mode, and she couldn't handle it. It was going to get divergent. So I'm laying on my side, upside down, reaching around behind her to grab the stick uh, to dampen the thing wow. out, and then she jumped out of the seat, and it's probably the only time I ever saw her really scared. And uh, But the wow. long and the short of it was, until we burned off enough fuel that the airplane, if the autopilot kicked off, it would, it would uh, stabilize itself out, had positive pitch damping. And that wasn't going to happen until almost the Philippines. Wow. And it's uh, the Pacific Ocean is really big. Yeah. Uh, and and sure will, that, we will talk about the book, obviously, uh, which people can get all the details on. Um, what, what was the greatest... I mean, what, what, you know, you're going all the way around the entire globe. What, what place do you remember the most before you came to the landing? What, what place do you remember during that journey the most? Uh, the good or the bad things? <laughs> well, how about a good moment? I sat, I sat in the seat and I didn't get out for three nights. And at the Philippines, going into the fourth night, I thought, well, Dick, you're really a, this real great uh, Sierra Hotel jet fighter pilot, you can handle that. But even you, Dick, you can't do it four nights in a row. You just can't do it. And so I did get out of the seat and lay down. And uh, just right, I think I slept, uh, stretched out for about uh, an hour and a half. And then we're in the Philippines and the weather was bad and the primary autopilot failed. And um, then we had to sort all that out and stuff. Uh, so uh, I found that I could take a five-minute cat nap. Five minutes, no longer. And that was pretty refreshing for some reason. I, I, could, I could deal with that. 
So that's kind of how we handle the the sleep thing. Wow, that's a that's amazing. You tell a story of what it was like to to make that last amount get to get back for that landing and and fuel. Tell me a little bit about that. Ah. Uh, well, a, a couple of big things. One of it was, uh, and here again, it was the fact that uh, the co-pilot never did refuse to learn anything about the, uh, the airplane or how to run a radar. And it was Africa. And uh, I was told her to give me instruction to wake me up at, wake me up at uh, Yankee Delta, which is a checkpoint in Africa. That's about a mile and a half, uh, I'm sorry, an hour and a half before a 14,000 foot mountain there in Cameroon. And we were at 7,000 and it was dark as the inside of a cow too that night. Hmm. We were over land. And, uh, and then I said, I gotta get some sleep. And so, and I didn't generally put her in the seat during the nighttime, but there was no chance. We had been at high altitude, uh, 20,000, 25,000 over Africa and horrible thunderstorms. Anyway, I told her, wake me up a Yankee Delta. So I got out of the seat and put her in the seat and told her again and again. In fact, the mission control had called us and says, hey, look out, look out, Dick. There's a 14,000 foot mountain out there just before you get feet wet again in Cameroon. It's called Mount Cameroon. Uh, and it's more like a mountain like Mount Shasta, not just a, you know, a ridge of mountains. And so I got out and I laid back, when I laid back down with my head up against the firewall in the back, if I lay on my side, my right shoulder would actually hit the ceiling. So it was pretty cramped. But anyway, I was really tired. And so uh, I went to sleep, I guess. And I don't remember going to sleep a minute. Uh, I was just worried about that, kept worried about that mountain. And then I didn't think I was even asleep. And she reached over and my legs were up front by the instrument panel. So she shook my legs. And... Uh, uh, I thought I'd only been asleep maybe 10 minutes, and I was mad because I needed this sleep. <laughs> and so I got a hold of the interphone, found it, and finally pushed the mic. And I says, are we at Yankee Delta yet? And she says, oh, that. We passed it an hour and a half ago. And then I looked, uh, I had her move out of the way so I could see the radar. And she had, not knowing how to read a radar, she had, uh, Borescoped Mount Cameroon dead ahead. Oof. And the bottom of the radar showed that we were probably about a half a mile from impact. And it wasn't enough time for me to get out of the seat. So it was just turn, turn, turn. And I probably said some things that were very nice. Maybe that's why she, when we landed, she got out of the airplane and went back to Texas and I've never heard from her again. That's mm -hmm. a metaphor, by the way. <laughs> uh, I was pretty. Well, you can imagine, I was kind of upset. Uh, Your arrival back in the States was very dramatic. Tell me a little bit about that. Because she didn't replenish the oil, but uh, whatever. There was, a, there was a lot of stuff like that. Whether uh, getting shot down off Cambodia when they said, if you go closer, we're going to shoot you down. And then trying to get off the coast of Somalia. I uh, thought I was jumped by a jet fighter that fired a rocket at me, and it turned out to be the planet Venus. That was embarrassing. 
<laughs> well, there was, there was a lot of stuff going on. Firstly, I was trying to talk to Sri Lanka Control uh, on the radio. And they, um, of course, when you check in with the controlling agency, they want to know uh, what kind of airplane you are. And I told them, and they didn't have any idea what it was. And we had to go through that for five minutes. And then they wanted to know, of course, which is normal. They want to know where you came from. And I told them, uh, uh, Kilo Echo Whiskey Delta, which is Edwards Air Force Base. And then they says, okay, what's your destination? And I says, Kilo Echo Whiskey Delta. And then I knew that they'd never heard of that. So I knew that there was one guy that got up and went back to the library, get the library book out. And he pulled it out and he looked around where this was and he found that it was a military base halfway around the world. <laughs> and you can imagine what he thought. And then he had the, the audacity with his uh, East Indian accent uh, to admonish the world's greatest jet fighter pilot over the whole air. <laughs> and about that time, I was in no mood for that. So I called, uh, we switched frequencies. I called them all the way back halfway around the world uh, to our mission control and said, hey, I can't talk to these guys anymore. I'm not making any position reports. You call them on the telephone and you make up routing. The route in that you give them, make God make darn sure you don't ever tell them where we are, because they didn't want anybody coming messing with us. And so the rest of the flight, they handled all the uh, fictitious position reporting and stuff for the flight, which wow. took a big on my shoulders. Uh, but then, I, I guess uh, there was one thing uh, about fatigue-wise. Uh, you know, you can get really tired and sleepy and you're going to lay down and boy, you just, you just can't stay awake and you nod off. And, it, you know, everybody knows the same feeling when you get really sleepy. But there's another thing that happens to you when, you're, when your brain gets really fatigued and it starts, it starts shutting down when you're fully conscious. Uh, and it was just exactly like uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey when the guy crawled back there and started pulling the chips out of Hal, the computer. And then he just kind of, he knew it was happening to him, but he couldn't do anything about it uh, to try to shut him down. It was exactly what happened. And I'm sitting there and it's, it wasn't much going on. It was out over the Atlantic and the sun was shining in on me and it was just beautiful. And all of a sudden, uh, things start shutting down. You know, I looked at an instrument, had no idea what it was. And I looked over at the control stick and I looked at it and didn't have any idea what it was. I didn't even know where I was, but it's perfectly conscious. You know, it wasn't like I had no sense of being fatigued. And then some other things start shutting down. I'm starting to get hazy. And then the, the last thing that I remember is that, you know, uh, you know, Gina may be interested in this. <laughs> well, I should tell her. And then I don't remember a thing happened after that. For how that little girl got me out of the seat and drug me in the back and, and put me to sleep for three hours that I could wake up refreshing. I had no idea how she did that. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And uh, that, uh, we were running, we're almost home. It's midnight and we're going to be home at eight o'clock in the morning. And that last eight hours of the flight, uh, we had fuel hiding in, in the airplane. We had a transfer pump, electric pump that was supposed to transfer the fuel to where we could use it, and it had failed. And uh, we needed, uh, at that point, we needed 28 gallons to get home. And I looked at the feed tank, which is the only one that had a gauge on it, and it only had about eight gallons at that time. 
And so now we thought that most of the fuel tanks were empty or getting close to with 19 fuel tanks. And so then um, during the process of trying to transfer, one of the pumps failed, uh, sheared a shaft and, and never pumped another drop of fuel. I could hear it over speed and a flash of light in a dark cockpit. And that transfer pump, we needed that to get that fuel up where we could use it. And I guess I won't embarrass the, the name of the pump, but his initials were Duke's pump. Anyway, we didn't take backup for some reason, and we really needed that. Uh, so the only other thing was that on the other side of the airplane, we had the only working one, and I went around, visited all the tanks, and got every last drop that I could find. And then, uh, then I knew that we had uh, the last fuel that was out of the tips. I don't know, it must have had maybe 15 gallons. Uh, that was the last fuel that we wanted to use. And so I went out there and emptied one of them, I think. And then we swapped the tank, we swapped the, the pump, disconnected it, all the fuel lines and, and fuel all over the bottom of the cockpit. And finally, uh, went out there to find to get that last bit of fuel. And I knew that the fuel was out there and we could get home easy. And I turned on the transfer pump and it started transferring. And the, and the tank only had about a couple, three gallons in it and it was empty. It had leaked. And so now we had lost about 3% of our fuel to a fuel leak. And at that point off Cabo San Lucas that night, we weren't going any place. I didn't even have enough fuel to get to a lighted field to land the airplane. And I had to land this airplane on the field at night was just something way beyond that I thought I could do uh, for, for a lot of reasons. And all of a sudden, I thought, now we're going to lose the airplane. Uh, and, and I thought, look how, look at five and a half years, look how far we've gone, look how much we've done. We turned down the we turned down the tobacco money. We did it for all the right reasons. And it was a volunteer thing. And it was just uh, the, the challenge of doing something really incredible, unrefueled flight around the world, and it was done on a shoestring. Just like a bunch of talented people got together and decided, screw it, screw the money, we'll just do it anyway. And all those talents came together. And I kept thinking about that, we get this close to home. And I thought, fate can't be that cruel. Uh, we're good people. It's, we did it for the right reasons. My heart was pure. And I thought, God. And then, then we're doing, uh, not to, to get too confused about the tanks and the switchology. Uh, the front engine hadn't run since, uh, since back in Guam. It's feathered. And so uh, trying to sort this thing out, I, star I starved the fuel to the engine, to the back engine, and the engine quit. Now we're in a glide. And with a failed transfer pump, and it also was supposed to be the boost pump to take the fuel and boost it back to the engine. That was the one that failed. And I sat down there and selected a fuel tank that had fuel in it, and I didn't have a boost pump for it. And uh, the engine quit, and then so I kicked it off autopilot and started putting the nose down to keep the speed up to keep it windmilling, because the back engine had no starter. If it stopped, we were screwed. So I'm diving to the ocean, trying to keep the and keep the speed up and keep it windmilling, and then trying to sort this thing out. But the darn airplane wouldn't start. Uh, 
and I called mission control and I says, hey, we just got a flame out. And uh, after a couple of minutes, uh, actually we're in a spiral. I can see the moon going by. <laughs> uh, didn't realize I was in a spiral and we started going down to the Pacific Ocean that night with flamed out and there was no way. And I thought, God, uh, this is really bad. I can't, I can't accept the fact that it's, not only that, we're gonna lose the airplane and doing a, a dead stick landing and a frail little airplane that would come apart initially right where we sat. And the chances of surviving on that was just nothing. And um, I, I called in Mike Millville. Uh, I caught, we're flamed out and we did this, this, and this, and we're standing by for restart. And after about three minutes, which would seem to him like an eternity of not hearing from us, he says, Dick, you got any firing? You got any pressure? And the most forlorn thing came back. I says, Mike, we got negative pressure. We got negative firing. We got negative anything. And his response was, Roger. Because he, he'd accept, you know, he accept the totality of this whole thing. What a shame that this was going to happen. Uh, anyway, just before we hit the water, I finally got the front engine going and and uh, finally sorted it out and climbed back to altitude again. And uh, we did find the fuel. Uh, we got the thing transferred and we we're going looking at other tanks. Was all we needed was 28 gallons in the main tank and it had a gauge on it and it would come up uh, that night. I uh, started transferring. We really didn't have any idea how much fuel we had on board the airplane, but we needed 28 gallons to get home. And it would send to 10 gallons and it's still transferring, and then 12 gallons still transferring. I says, Voyager Mission Control, this is Voyager 1. And we got 15 gallons in the feed tank and we're still transferring. And they would say, Roger. And then it was 20 and 22 and then 25. And I thought, my God, of all these years, it's all I needed was three gallons, three gallons out of three and a half tons of fuel. If we just could find three gallons, if it can stay there and transfer that last three gallons, we're going to make it. And I sat there that night and holding my breath, and that little gauge finally went up to 28 gallons. And wow. I shut off the transfer switch. And I says, Voyager Mission Control, this is Voyager 1. We got 28 gallons in the feed tank. It will see you home at 8 o'clock. And then that last, those last handful of hours, off Cabo San Lucas and off San Diego and out over the Pacific Ocean, it was really dark. Uh, at that point, I felt like it was a, an Indy race car driver on the last lap and he was leading and he's hoping that the engine doesn't blow or, or it doesn't spin out or it doesn't blow a tire. We were checking this and checking that and is everything okay? And, and uh, turn and pick the coastline up on the radar. Yeah, I'm on track. Uh, just right on the edge of my seat, kept thinking, keep running, keep running. We've come this far. And then the darkest night, the darkest night, dark as the inside of a cow. We finally got VHF communication with Bert, and uh, and he was flying with uh, with Mike Melville. Yeah, and he was. We we're going to do a head-on rejoin at night, head-on. And it's all we can see is each other's strobe light. And those of you that fly night formation have an appreciation for that. But anyway, Mike uh, executed a perfect formation. 
and he rolled out and his only flying formation all you could see was a strobe light now the wingtip lights weren't there because they were still laying on the runway at edwards air force base a week and a half before that so all there was was the tail light and a strobe light and they're they're looking at that and uh, Pretty soon, you know, Bert really thought he'd probably never see his brother again. And he said that. And he says, here it is. And he could not believe it. He had to have confirmation. He says, Dick, why don't you turn off that strobe light to confirm that it's really you? And I thought, that's a good idea. That's cool. I said, okay. So I reached up and turned the switch off. And that one strobe light that was flashing stopped flashing. And then he had a confirmation. He says, okay, uh, go ahead and turn it back on again. And I turned it on, and that was the confirmation that it really was his brother. That it really was the Voyager. And we had really made it, and we were really this close. And the totality of the thing finally hit all of us. Mike, Gene, uh, and myself in the airplane were, were literally crying. Tears coming down your face. Uh, you couldn't even speak you were crying so hard and then the sun came up off san diego and there was the la basin and the san gabriel's mountains and over that we looked down and there's edwards air force base those hallowed ground where chuck yeager and scott crossfield chased the demons in the sky and there it was and i looked down and i saw tens of thousands of people that came out on the western dry lake uh, to greet us uh, the, the line of cars is backed up all the way into Lancaster, they said. Uh, even though Bert had told me about that, I had a feeling that, you know, this is a restricted area. And every time I said May Day, they always let me in. But I didn't have permission this time. I didn't have a letter to get back in. And there was no May Day. You know, I didn't want to lie about it. And so <laughs> I called the tower. It says, uh, Edwards Tower, this is Voyager 1. It says, look, we're about 20 minutes south. And, uh, and I know you're really busy, uh, and I don't want to interfere with any of your flight tests or anything, but if you just let us land in a remote area of the dry lake, it, you know, like I'm begging for him to let us into it, with my fingers crossed, I kept thinking, please let me in, please let me in. <laughs> but the tower came back and he was confused, and he says, Voyager, he says, Voyager 1, this is Edward Sauer. He says, sir, we have canceled flying for today. And we're all here waiting for your return. And I was dumbfounded. And here we are, a little home builder from this crummy little desert town in Mojave. And these people are flight testing B-2 bombers and, and supersonic airplanes in the flight test center. And who the hell are we that we should interfere with this, with this testing facility, at this, this secret test facility at Edwards Air Force Base? And their way they canceled for us, and I was dumbfounded. And I guess they did. So we descended and uh, did a bunch of flybys, maybe too low over the crowd. Uh, I just didn't want to land. I said, look at all these people. We're going to give them a little, give them a little air show. And then somebody says, hey, Dick, if you wait another 20, another 20 minutes, you'll have an even nine days. And I thought, wow, that would be cool. So we're going to orbit around. And so we buzzed the crown. And, uh, Somebody would say, hey, Dick, what are you going to do now? I says, well, going to Disneyland. I <laughs> uh, says, Dick, what time is it? I says, well, it's Miller time. You only go around once. <laughs> <laughs> and 
And we talked about, about America and the flag and the freedom that we had to do something like this. We had the freedom to violate every every aviation rule that there was, and, and there was no government to tell us uh, that we could or could not do something. We had the total freedom, and that only happens in America. And so yeah. we were feeling pretty good. And then it was finally that we had an even nine days. And then the only thing now I had to, to not uh, not screw up the landing, <laughs> and then all the paragraphs had to work. And uh, there was this, the certification requirements of the, the, uh, the people, the umpires from the National uh, National Aeronautic Society, and also the Federation Aeronautic International was there too. And so we had some other paragraphs and some other ways of determining or proving that we didn't land. That was important. And so I came around and uh, they counted down now in the middle of dry lake there's no depth perception and look at me i, I was you know, i was numb with uh, fatigue and and i didn't know what my depth perception was going to be uh, i was really worried about that so we came around and jana put the landing gear down and now we were in final approach to that hallowed ground we touched down and taxied up to the crowd uh, to the tv cameras and uh, shut down. And then the inspectors came and they had to remove the barographs and photograph all the seals and so forth. And then it was time to get out. And there was a lot of people around. And of course, I got out and I was sitting on the edge of the airplane and a lady come up from one of the networks, I think, and she had a TV camera there with us. And she says, you know, what's the first words that you say to the world? And she, she kind of mentioned that, hey, this is the first words in the whole world that's listening to you. <laughs> and I hadn't thought about the words that I was saying. I was just so bloody glad to be back. And I don't remember what I told her, but I think it was appropriate. However, I'd been laying down for a week and a half, and I didn't realize that my legs were totally atrophied. <laughs> uh, they weren't going to work, and I didn't realize that until I... Tried to set, slide off the fuselage and put my weight on the ladder to get down, and my legs were just like rubber. Okay, mm -hmm. now here's this fighter pilot saying, and I knew, and, and they all thought they were going to have to carry us out. They'd set up ladders and stuff so they could winch us out of the cockpit because we'd be totally immobile. But if there was, you know, they'd never let me back in the fighter pilot bar again. You know, that, that ever <laughs> happened. The eagle was on the ladder. And so when I put my weight on the, my weight on the ladder, they were just rubbery, and they wouldn't work. And uh, yeah, you try you try laying down for a week and a half, and then try to walk right away. So I pushed back myself back up on the fuselage, and uh, now I'm frantically working my legs, trying to uh, hide the fact that I that I knew that I couldn't walk. <laughs> and uh, wow. so after a little bit of exercise legs and finally I thought that I was good enough that they just barely handled me and so we got down anyway they did remove all the paragraphs and we did get official credit for for the first around the flight and, and, and that'll work and then uh, they grabbed Gina uh, she had after the four and a half day flight we were on we were on TV the three networks were there 
and Gina had passed out. And uh, and they carried her off in front of all the networks. But that was another flight about six months before that. Wow. So as soon as Gina got down, the, Susie Bowman, the nurse, grabbed her <laughs> and made sure that she was not going to uh, pass out again in front of all this network camera. And then they drug her off immediately to the ambulance to go to the hospital. Wow. Now, all those medical guys, they they couldn't wait to get their hands on me for a hearing check and, and cognitive and some other tests that they had. And uh, I says, you know, for two and a half years, my routine was a shutdown. And I, I get out of the airplane and we do a post flight, look around the airplane and see what broken and, and uh, had a big write up of things that were wrong. There was a lot of things wrong with the airplane. <laughs> and I'm walking around with the wingtips and Bert's out there. He's looking at all the dead insects to determine how many uh, uh, laminar flow disturbance that a dead bug on a leading edge of a wing could cause. He was doing that. <laughs> And I was going around the airplane and I looked at the left wing tip and it was ground away. And I went back to the back engine and looked at it. And there was a bracket that almost came apart that one of the propeller blade brakes uh, almost came through, almost broke enough. And I looked at that and I thought, boy, that was close. <laughs> but I didn't wow. care because we were going to fly this Hummer again. So I walked around out to the right wing tip. And there was another another volunteer, his name was Fergie Fay, and he was a cool guy. He was a P-51 World War II fighter pilot. And, and he was standing there, and, and I walked up, and I was looking at this wingtip, uh, thinking about the write-ups that we have to write up and debrief the thing and figure out how we're going to do to fix it and engineering and so forth to correct the things that were wrong. And I looked at that wingtip that was all tore up, and I thought, and it finally hit me. I says, Ferg. Do you have any idea how many things are wrong with this airplane? And we don't have to fix one of them. <laughs> <laughs> that's just okay. Uh, that's amazing. Well, so, Dick, I want to show everybody your book um, so that uh, we can make sure that they get out there and get it. The book is The Next Five Minutes. If you want the entire story, it's available on Amazon. Uh, you can also get a signed copy of it, and it is also available um, uh, via audiobook uh, through there. And there it is. I am absolutely looking forward to having that here on our shelf here in our studio. And uh, Dick, I, I just want to say thank you so, so much for coming on the show. Uh, again, the book is the next five minutes. Everybody needs to go get that. Yeah, the flight. Of, the majority of the book is a flight of the Voyager, but the book's name is the next five minutes. And I realized how many times I sat in a cockpit, off, and wondered what the next five minutes of my life was going to be like, uh, like running, uh, riding a burning F-100 out to the Gulf of Tonkin and ejecting during my combat days, and uh, a couple other ejections and some other problems that that we had with flight tests and. Had to bail out of a balloon that was supposed to go around the world and ended up in a Choya cactus patch. So sometimes uh, you try things and they don't always work. But I look well, at that we, as character development. Will we be able to get you back here on the show to talk about uh, war stories and some of your other uh, adventures? Yeah, you bet. And that'd, um, be, that'd be wonderful. You bet. My pleasure. Hey, it's been a really enjoyment, Jeff. And, uh, well, listen, Dick, thank you uh, so, uh, so much for your time.
thank you for your time. Thank you for everything that you have done for aviation, for this country, for the world. For uh, it, you've been an inspiration to millions, and um, and I'm just grateful that you're able to tell your story here. And I look forward to you coming back on, telling more uh, of the other aspects of your life. Again, to everyone out there, the book is the next five minutes. Be sure to get that. The only way to fail is if you quit. <laughs> And that was words to, uh, that helped us out. Absolutely. Well, thank you so, so much for joining us tonight on Social Flight Live, Dick. It's been wonderful. You bet. Go get it. Have a good evening. Bye-bye. And to all of you, thank you so much for joining us here on Social Flight Live for this amazing show with Dick Rutan. We'll be back next Tuesday, September 12th, with Phil Susi, RSO on the SR-71 of Blackbird. Uh, really, really amazing stories to hear from Phil, so I'm really looking forward to having him on the show. And then on Tuesday, September 19th, M0A's Jason Shepard will be joining us talking all about flight training and uh, some of the new things that he's teaching over there at M0A. And then on Tuesday, September 26th, Army Blackhawk helicopter pilots, Chris Reeves and Cole Hamilton will be here talking about flying the Blackhawk as well as doing that within uh, the air show. They flew the actual air show at AirVenture and uh, it's uh, they're gonna talk a lot about that. So thank you so much again for joining us and I wish you all Blue skies.